Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 148. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here to celebrate the 40th anniversary of 1981's The Fox and the Hound, based off of the novel by Daniel uh, Mannix. Growing up, this was actually a movie that we watched a lot. And I know that a lot of people debate the rewatchability of this movie, but this was a popular one in our house, and I'm, I'm curious to see how often you watched this one growing up. Uh, we watched on the regular when I was growing up. Not because of me. This was a big one with my brother, so I've seen it probably more times than I can count. Uh, and it's not to say that I didn't want to rewatch it, but it's not the most uplifting Disney film. No, of all of the Disney movies that we have reviewed, this is probably the one that is the closest to a downer. Um, like, Coco is close, but, but Coco's uplifting. They're all dead, but it's uplifting, but they're all dead. So that's, it's not really a downer, but, I mean, just based on the subject matter alone, it's not always the happiest of films, depending on how you look at it, but I think for sure this is the one that is the most melancholy we've ever discussed. Right, like Coco, you watch when you want a good cry. This just doesn't put you in a good mood, not to spoil our review, but we're going to break it down. This review is sponsored by the freshly back from vacation in Walt Disney World, Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products and new products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram, definitely, because they're going to be posting a lot. Yeah. Uh, or Etsy and search for the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. and shop for all of your straw charm needs. We are introduced to Todd, an orphaned fox who is taken in by the widow Tweed after his mother is killed by a hunter. Her neighbor, Amos Slade, also welcomes a new member of the family, a puppy named Copper, who he intends on turning into a great hunting dog. One day, Todd wanders off and meets Copper, and the two become best friends. Todd is discovered by Chief, Amos's other hunting dog, and after a skirmish, Amos tells Tweed that he will kill Todd if he ever sees him again. That winter, Amos takes the dogs hunting, and when they return in the spring, Copper has in fact become a great hunting dog and tells Todd that things can't be as they used to be. Chief overhears them talking, and a chase ensues, concluding after Chief is hit by a train and breaks his leg. Amos and Copper blame Todd for the accident, and the widow decides that she can't lock up Todd inside to keep him safe, so she takes him to a nature preserve and sets him free. Amos and Copper then set off to find Todd and seek out their revenge. After his first night in the woods, Todd is introduced to Vixie, a female fox, by the owl Big Mama, who actually had helped him find the widow Tweed when he was orphaned. She takes a liking to him, but their romance seems short-lived as they are quickly found by Amos and Copper. While chasing after them, Amos and Copper are attacked by a large bear, and Todd arrives to fight the bear off. The fight ends when Todd and the bear fall off a waterfall, but Todd manages to survive. Amos aims his gun to shoot Todd, but Copper stands in front of him and saves his friend. Back at Slater's, the widow nurses 
Amos back to health because he had stepped in a bear trap as well as survived the attack on the bear. Uh, she nurses him back to help while uh, back to health while Todd and Vixie watch from a distance. So here's the thing: this novel was written. It was a big success, and actually, animal lovers really took to this. Walt Disney Pictures got the rights to make the film in 1967. They didn't release it until 81. I'm I'm going rogue. I actually went and read the plot of the original novel because I had no interest in reading the book. I'm just going to be honest with you. If it's as much of a downer as the film, it's worse. there's a reason I've it's never worse. picked it up. Oh, it's worse. Like where the red fern grows worse? Yeah. So here's oh, here's what oh, happens no. in no, the no. here's what happens in the book. Copper is the old dog, and the hunter brings in Chief, who is the young pup. Okay. So there's that role reversal. Copper hates Chief because he's jealous of him. Meanwhile, Todd is an orphan fox, his mother does get hunted, and he does get taken in by the widow. When he does set foot on the property, the chase does ensue. Chief gets hit by the train and dies. You figured. Now, after a year, they swear their revenge on Todd. Todd leaves on his own to go be in the woods because he's starting to mature and he wants to find a mate. Okay. Meets Vixie. They have their litter of kits. Copper and the hunter. No, no. Find them. No, no. Kill the kits. Kill Vixie. And a lifelong obsession with killing Todd ensues. They literally spend a lifetime setting poison, which kills children. Trying, yeah, trying to get Todd. Todd eventually dies of exhaustion from having to run his entire life. And right as the hunter goes into the nursing home, because he's going in, because his whole life has been spent trying to hunt Todd, Copper gets the old yeller treatment. <gasps> oh, yeah. So if you thought the animated product was dark, the, the book is even worse. But the book... See, here's how they, they say the book is kind of brilliant, because it follows the hunt amongst animals while also commenting on how the world is changing around them because they go from these rolling hills and these farms to highways and buildings and trains and, and trains and shopping centers. So it kind of like has this uh, animals being forced out of their habitat and this becomes the side effect. So it does, it, it was very well received, but yeah, that's the original that's the novel. That's a lot of heavy themes. And that might be the worst case of Disneyfication we've ever seen. I mean, we know that's what Disney does, right? They adapt these novels and they make them a lot more lighthearted. The right. real story of Cinderella is actually horrible, where they're cutting off toes to get the stepsister's yes. foot into the yeah. glass slipper. Yeah. I actually just recently learned what happens in the real Sleeping Beauty and... It's absolutely horrible. So, I mean, yeah, the Disneyfication of these novels, they're well known for it. And, I mean, 
like now when you when you compare the novel to the plot that I just read, clearly they were able to weave a story out of it, but it almost begs the question why? Why did you even do it? With something that heavy, I mean, you made it work and it was a big commercial success for you, but it's like somebody, I I feel like they they did it because they read it and because the book had so much buzz, they're like, well, we have to adapt it. We'll figure it out later, and I think that's kind of why it took them 14 years to get this movie made. I'll give the 14 years a pass because look what happened with Mary Poppins. Yeah. Look what happened with Alice in Wonderland. I mean, Disney did that. He got the rights and sat on them in development for a while until you know they had a story that really worked or you know he had the money <laughs> yeah <laughs> and duped Roy to go produce the film yeah exactly um but i i get why it's a story worth telling because the the arc of Todd and Copper in the film and the growing pain story yeah. is actually really beautiful and it i is. think you know, now we have something more recent like Luca that does that. And that's what makes Luca so beautiful, too. So for the time, especially think about the era that this is taking place when we're getting away from princessy films, mm-hmm. even though we're about to come right back to them in 89 with Little Mermaid. Um, I can definitely see why they wanted to pursue something like this. Yeah. And especially if you're looking at something like Bambi. Yep. It's it's the wheelhouse. It's what they do so well with these animals, which, you know, is evidenced in the opening shot. I know. They start with this amazing rack focus of a spider web that's all wet with dewdrops, and then they rack back, and it's absolutely stunning, and then it's pretty much all downhill from there. It's Bambi. The opening scene is Bambi. It's straight out of Bambi. But the sound design is absolutely incredible. The chase of Todd and his mother does drag out a little long because this is over the entirety of the opening credits. But what blows me away every time I watch this is that they managed to create so much tension with this driving music and the dogs barking, but you never see the dogs. No. It's just Todd and his mother on the run. And the Buddy Baker score throughout the entire film is spectacular. It really is. It definitely does add to the drama right away. Is it Amos? That's the question. Is the hunter Amos? Because they never they never out and out show the hunter, but I'm sort of led to believe that it's him. I kind of feel like it is because you're led to believe that this is his turf, right? Yeah. I mean, we know that he's got all these pelts. They're coming from somewhere. So this is not his first time at the rodeo with Todd, even though he's a terrible shot. Um, He's he's as bad as a stormtrooper. We'll we'll get into that. Um, I kind of believe it's Amos, but at the same time, I don't want to because then they lost a big story arc for Todd about this being revenge with him or, or how much overcoming he would have had to do to be friends with Copper and accept Copper. Right. Um, yeah, that's true. That's very true. Um, I mean, not it, he may have never known, and that could have added a layer of drama. But yeah, it's sort of ambiguous, and you don't know exactly who the hunter is. The only thing that we know is that the only hunter that we know exists in the movie, you know, it's not, it's not Bambi where man's in the woods, right? Where it, right. it could be anybody. 
we know who the hunter is in this film. And in Bambi, you feel more like it's hunting season. I feel like this is more, especially with the Widow Tweed, I feel like this is more like pioneer era where they're just hunting for survival or in Amos's case, I don't think it's for food. I think it's to sell the pelts and make money. Yeah, because you look at the vehicles. It's very, very turn of the century. So you're right. I get the, like, she's she's milking the cow, and then she's got the milk jugs, and you could tell, like, she's on her way somewhere to deliver this milk. They're homesteaders. Exactly. Um, so totally by, I love the setting. I think the anime, I just want to get this out of the way, because you alluded to it. The animation Amazing. is Stunning. And that's kind of crazy, too, because this was the last of the Disney films that included the Nine Old Men. This was what handed over the reins to the Randy Cartwrights and the Glenn Keens. And actually, Lasseter, Brad Bird, and Tim Burton, this was their first movie. So this is like such an interesting film because this really is the turning of the page for Disney history. Definitely watch those opening credits carefully because there's so much going on with the hunt and the music and hearing the hounds, but you're going to see all of these names that you recognize. But what struck me was seeing Randy Cartwright's name in the same role as Frank and Ollie. So this truly is a passing of the baton. Yeah. It gave me chills to see. So now we get to the homestead because Big Mama, the owl, has w- basically seen what happens to Todd's mother. We hear the gunshot. It's just like Bambi. I can't believe they went for Bambi 2.0. Like we've seen it in Bambi and it's horrible, but I'm surprised that they didn't go for a new shock value. It's still just as shocking. It's still just as horrible. But like, if you're going to do it, why, why do it the same way? You know? Yeah. I mean, this is how it was in the book. And I suppose there's no other way to start the movie, but you're right. It begs the question. Why would you do basically the exact same thing? It, It doesn't like take away from the quality of the film, but Upon first viewing, I would imagine that a lot of people thought that it was just that Bambi 2.0. No, and I guess you had to have a punchline for that huge chase. And not to sound completely horrible, but if it was a trap, it's not going to have that same gut punch. Correct. Because you need you need Big Mama to find him. You need to know that this fox is orphaned immediately. Right. So we're on the homestead, and she utilizes Boomer and Dinky, two other birds, to get the attention of the widow. They steal her undergarments from the clothesline. They drop it on Todd, and that's how she finds him. And then otherwise, those two characters are rendered useless. They are completely useless. Um, Comic relief, yes, but... They serve no purpose. They do nothing. Well, actually... I think that they serve a symbolic purpose because the entire their entire purpose is to chase this worm that they're trying to eat. And the worm gets away from them and the worm eludes them. And then one day the worm turns into a butterfly. I feel like, like symbolically it's significant, but I feel like you kind of have to like really reach to get that one. Because I think that the, the overall 
power in the message of the film with the coming of age and the looking looking past somebody's skin, right? That's really what the movie is about. Um, because this this hunting dog and this fox, it's it's the hunter and the prey are are becoming friends. Like that within itself is symbolic enough. I don't think you really needed this butterfly thing to happen. But I feel like that was the only reason why Boomer and Dinky exist. I guess to parallel, everybody's trying to survive, but we get it. Yeah, we get it. But they're here. This is how the widow Tweed finds Todd. I love how she is drawn. I actually think that when you look back on some of the really beautifully drawn Disney characters... Because I think the Fox and the Hound, due to its overall tone, kind of does become a forgotten classic. Because you're not going to watch it the same way you would watch a Sleeping Beauty or a Snow White. Even though, you know, they have, obviously, they're very Disney-fied as well. They still, like, have that, like, cheery, uplifting feel to them. Sure. That doesn't, that doesn't ever happen in this movie. So, I feel like it's so overlooked. And because the movie's overlooked, you forget how beautifully drawn she is. Stylistically, she reminds me, I mean, I, I think this probably goes for everybody, of the fairy godmother in Cinderella or Nanny in 101 Dalmatians. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is to say that, you know, not, not that they're pulling from the same bag of tricks, but they just do these kindly old women so well. But especially they gave her such a sorrowful quality because she is a widow. Yeah. They they just nailed it. She's definitely a forgotten classic kind of character. Yeah, she, I mean, up to this point, we're almost 150 films into our run here. I mean, the Skull King in the, in the Black Cauldron is probably the best Disney villain that you don't know about because the Black Cauldron is such a tire fire. But I honestly don't know of too many other characters off the top of my head as I'm thinking on the spot here that are as forgotten, undeservedly so, as the Widow Tweed, just in her overall design and demeanor. And Amos, too, in his own right. Yeah. He is probably one of the worst kinds of villains. He's evil right off the rip just from the conditions that those dogs are living in. Like, you think that barrel is satisfactory? No, not at all. I have some major issues with this. Yeah, but if it's turn of the century, dogs weren't pets. They, these dogs, these were hunting animals. It wasn't his pet. Like this was his this was his coworker. Well, we did talk about that a little bit with Lady and the Tramp how right. you know, Lady was put in the doghouse and she was left there like all day. Uh so it was a completely different viewpoint back then, but I mean okay, Let's let's strip it down to they're his hunting partners at its most basic. They're left out there with a bowl of water all day. And the way that they're chained, I mean, that's the other thing. They're hunting dogs. They need exercise. He's it he doesn't take them out every single day. So they're spending far too much time chained up like that. Right, but in his defense, he's obviously an older gentleman. We know that the way he's drawn. Let's say he's sixty five years old. And let's say that this movie is... they Because they never define when the movie takes place. Let's call it, you know, 1910. This man was born in the 1850s. 
You know what I'm saying? So if, if you really, really think about it, I get what you're saying. I'm, I'm not saying what your opinion has no validity, but to me, I'm willing to overlook it just on, this is just one of those things you chalk up to different era, different time period, different way of thinking. And I think it's also a story device because you have to give Todd a reason to keep going back there. Well, then that's the other thing, right? You you need you need Todd a re, uh, or you need Copper a reason to want to explore and to keep sneaking away. And and for Todd, there's that intrigue and finding this new puppy and and wanting to befriend it. You know, I mean, that's really that's the heart of the whole movie, right? Right. Well, also, I mean, Todd's not stupid. He's not going to keep going when he knows Amos is trying to kill him. But there's got to be a reason that pulls him back there. And if top if Copper is tied up. You know, obviously he's going to go find out why Copper couldn't meet him that day. Right. So we get introduced to Copper because now Amos has brought him back. He's in a little baggy. And Chief at first wants nothing to do with him. But quickly, you know, the way that Copper kind of like nuzzles up to him, he quickly takes to him. And what I love about Chief, and this is for Chief the whole film, but specifically here. And again, it goes back to the animation, how he emotes, mm. his his facial expressions, more so in the eyes. He actually reminds me of Baloo. The way that his face emotes reminds me I get taken right to Baloo. Interesting. I didn't think Baloo necessarily, but I, I like how stoic he is. And you can see he clearly has a soft spot for copper and their relationship and their dynamic is really interesting throughout the course of the film. I think that was a good call though. Flipping chief to being the older because chief, it just sounds, it sounds older. Old, yeah. Mm-hmm. So now Todd finds copper, right? He, he wanders over. They're immediately best friends. Big mama's watching the whole thing. It's much to her delight, even though I think she kind of knows the whole time it's not going to last. Right. The film, when they start playing and Big Mama sings her song and all that, the film has so much heart. And because the animals, they're, they're just adorable, especially they're so cute, especially Copper yeah. with the big wrinkles on his head. Um, it has so much heart initially that they do such a good job of setting up the roller coaster ride that I'm not even going to say happens in the final third of the film it's in the second half of the movie i mean half of this movie just kind of like leaves you with a pit in your chest definitely so um they're playing now they can't play anymore because copper has snuck off it's at least twice we see it twice it could have been more we don't really know but we see it's at least twice he gets tied up and this is where Todd is found by Chief and the chase ensues the first time because in this movie they chase after Todd a handful of times. What's kind of jarring to me is as Todd is trying to run back to his home, the widow is in her car. She's got three milk jugs and Todd just jumps in the back of her truck and Amos has no qualms with and he's not a good shot. He's Stormtrooper Slater. He has no qualms with just firing at the back of that car, blowing away the milk cans and not caring whether or not he shoots the widow. It bothers me 
so much every single time. I mean, I don't think that this is even his admission of I'm a terrible shot. So don't worry, I'm not going to hit her. No, that's every reason you could hit her because you're so bad. But aside from the danger that he's putting her in, like, yes, he could have killed her. But now you're going after this fox because this is how you make your money. You just took money out of her pocket by destroying this milk. And the other thing is that they they define a very, I can't even say a very rocky relationship. These are two people that are next door neighbors that just don't like each other. Right, because strip away how much danger he's putting her in. You know that this is her pet. You know that she's taken him in. You've seen him around. You know that she's caring for him. So why are you shooting? Like, I get it. Yes, you're a hunter, but can't you just let her have this one? Right. I mean, initially, yeah, he thought that that the fox was after the chickens, but he's just blindly shooting at everything. And they never define what their relationship is, why it's soured. Was it ever any good? And that kind of poses a whole other set of questions at the end of the movie, but I don't want to jump there quite yet. Maybe his terrible shooting is the reason she's a widow. I mean, we don't know. You know, all we know is that she says to Todd when she takes him in, you know, now I won't feel so lonely anymore. So you just feel so bad for her from the jump. And Amos is just what he is. So, I mean, I guess... I don't even look at him like he's a villain so much as he is an antagonist, but I want to put that out there and I want to pin it. I want to pin it because I kind of have, I have a thought process that I kind of go through personally from the beginning of of the film to the end of the film. And I had a thought process watching this a lot as a kid and I have a thought process now and it's, it's so vastly different. So I don't want to get into it too much just yet. What I do love about this scene, though, is how the widow flips it on him, literally flips the gun on him, and then she destroys his car. So for as much danger as he put her in, she can totally hold her own with him. And I'm glad she got him back. Right. So now she takes Todd back to the house, and Amos and the dogs go on their hunting trip. And he says, well, we'll be back in the spring, boys, and... The two birds, they fly south for the winter. Um, So now we get that passage of time. And what I thought is interesting here is that we don't really focus on how Todd is getting bigger and how he's changing and how he's maturing. This entire passage of time is focused on Copper. Because even though Todd has, I think he's got more screen time, and I think he has, by far, more lines. He's kind of the focus of the film. It's It wasn't until we sat and watched it here that I kind of realized this is Copper's movie. More so than it is, than it is Todd's. Because they take so much time to focus on how Copper is growing up and how Copper is changing. Todd is Todd is Todd. You know what I'm saying? He doesn't, other than getting big, he doesn't really change. I mean, yeah, he gets attracted to Vixie because he's getting older, but he's still Todd. Copper is the one that goes through this monumental change, and I think that's why it's important they spend so much time on them over the course of the winter. 
I think this is also the more relatable aspect of it because Copper is also learning to please his owner. And we understand that, you know, especially as pet owners and seeing your pet want to please you, even though he's a working dog, it's still the same concept of you have a purpose and you have to execute. And he likes the attention from Amos. He likes knowing that he he did a good job. And I love specifically when they get towards the end of the hunting trip, um, because when they go to leave, Copper's a pup. He goes to sit in the front and Chief says, no, you go uh. in the back. You got to earn your spot. And he was like gleefully happy to just go in the back. And he has that really heartbreaking final look at Todd and he's howling because he's sad he's getting taken away because I think he knows he's not coming back the same. And that's right. the thing. Copper, even as an adolescent, knows I am not coming back the same. Right. Um, and you do see that push pull even the first time he gets called back. He's like, I have to go. I'm going to be in trouble. Yeah. And he's really mad this time. Right. And it is something that he struggled with. But by the end of the hunting trip, Copper is sitting in the front. Right. I love the look on his face and how he's kind of like rocking his head back and forth. Like, look at me. Look what, what look at where I am. It's your turn to go into the back chief. Um, it's very much a beep eating grin for sure. So they come back. Well, wait, before we okay. get back, okay. there is something about this hunting trip that bothers me. Okay. There is like zero difference between where Amos lives on the homestead and where they go for their hunting trip. I mean, okay, at least the puppies are not outside in the snow. So Amos gets a pass from me there. But what I can't for the life of me understand is why you would go... I think we can kind of assume it's north up the mountain mm -hmm. to go hunting when most of these animals are hibernating. I mean, that's that's an uh, yeah, it's an interesting observation. Um, like when I thought he was going on a hunting trip, I thought he was maybe snowbirding for a bit. Well, I, th I mean, think about it. We have people that that live in this neighborhood that go hunting and they drive two hours away. You, know, you can't necessarily do it in your own backyard, um, especially because we do know that there is that nature preserve by them. So it's a protected area. Not that that matters later on in the film because they don't care because as as Amos says, we're not going hunting. We're seeking revenge. You know, it's we're we're it, it's justice. It's whatever. However it is, he said it. But that's the gist of it. Um it's the wood in the homestead. I mean, how how much can you differentiate it other than you change the house a little bit and now it's snowing. But I think what you're saying makes sense because you're hunting things that are in hibernation. Now, perhaps because you do get the scene where Copper barks at the tree and the quails come out right. and the hunter, he ends up getting one. So perhaps that was their whole thing was more about the sneak attack than it was anything else, though that is not clearly defined. Um, and I think that what you're saying here does make sense. Yeah. My issue is not with the house. It's with the weather. It's still the same weather that you're experiencing at home. So why bother to go? I mean, I guess I could give a pass that these cars don't have snow tires, so you're not going to go back and forth. It's easier for you to just stay up there. But it just doesn't make a lot of sense that, and, and if the idea was to show the animation with the snow, you're getting that with the widow tweed being right. there for the winter. So I, I don't know. I just felt like it was much to do about nothing. Fair enough. I do want to talk about the reunion here. And this is where 
I think my thought process from watching this as a kid to watching this now is so vastly different. And it's really an interesting observation of how you grow up with a film. As we talk about that a lot on this show, like, does it hit the same way? Do you like it the same way? Is it as funny? Is it funnier? You know, this scene, I think, they come back from the hunting trip. Todd sneaks out at night to go see Copper. And I remember as a kid when Copper basically said, I'm a hunting dog now. It's impossible for things to be the same. Things are changed. You got to go. I'm sorry. Don't wake up the chief. As a kid, Copper's a jerk. That's how I looked at it. How did you look at it as a kid? I would agree with that. It's like, why can't you overlook what your role is and stick up for your friend? Now that I'm older... Yeah. It's, no, you know what? Copper is just doing what he is supposed to do. This is his purpose in life. And he takes it very seriously. Especially when the second chase happens and he lets him go. But before he lets him go, he he says, I don't want to see you killed. And even before it happens, he's... You, you're going to wake the chief up. You've got to go. Now, to me as I watch it, not only is he fully invested in what he has become and what his purpose in life is, I think Todd grew up, but I don't think he's mean-spirited. I think the entire time it's, you can't come around here anymore. I can't see you anymore because they will kill you. And he knows it, and he's been trying to protect Todd. And that's part of the growing up process. And I think that as a kid, you don't necessarily pick up on that. I agree. Young Copper does come off as a jerk when you're a kid. But really, the whole time it's been tough love because he knows what his role is going to be. And that's like what I said, what he was already struggling with because he was being called home. He was being called away from Todd. So I think, you know, it's obvious he knew the entire time what their relationship was supposed to be, predator and prey. And I think he was trying to cut it off at the pass and trying to make sure that Todd wasn't too attached so that this exact thing didn't happen where it was going to hurt so much more later to rip them apart. Right. And now it's even more of a tough love. It's, you know, you have to stay away from me. Otherwise, you're going to leave me with no choice. And I think to circle back to something that you had said before that, they spend sort of that beginning of the second act on Copper and it's Copper's movie. I think this is why we don't spend that much time with Todd and why they didn't give him as strong of a character arc because if we saw him getting restless, being trapped inside, first of all, later on when she drops him off, it's not going to land as hard. Mm -hmm. But if he had a foot at the door, out the door this entire time it's not going to be as significant that Copper's telling him to stay away. Yeah. So, let's talk about Chief getting hit by the train. Can we not? Honestly, it had been so long since I saw this movie, I kind of forgot that that's what happened. Same. I I thought he died. And I, I mean, yeah, if it were true to the book, 
that's what would have happened. I mean, it should have killed him. He got hit by a train. And then fell off the trellis. One or the other was going to kill him, but he got both. Um, no, it's it's a devastating scene. It's just as bad as the car in Lady and the Tramp when you think you lose Trusty. Um, I'm glad that they didn't kill him, but... Yeah, it had been so long since I had seen this movie. I totally thought that's what happened. And I was like, I hate this movie. Um, so the hunter goes to the widow. And has he, he opens that door and aims that gun right into her house. I mean, he does not care. He's a mentally all. unstable person with a gun. Like, this is not good. This is why he is a, a, a really bad villain. So... He says, I'm going to get him. Now, we know that Todd has become her pet, but, like, to the point that she she put a collar on him. Like, he is a domesticated animal now. Right, and he's got the little fox bed. I thought that that was interesting because I had totally forgotten about the collar. And I don't know if it was her intention to always keep him because when you think about the span that this movie takes place in, it's about a year. I know that Todd and Copper obviously get bigger and puppies grow quickly yeah. when they're young. Um, and it's like overnight they become a full do- full grown dog. But for for this film, I think it's actually very smart that it takes place in a year. And that was only something that I realized as an adult watching this that maybe it wasn't her intent to keep him the whole time. Maybe she was just trying to rehabilitate him and make sure he could stand on his own two feet through the winter and then she was going to release him. But then when she saw this maniac next door, maybe that's why she tried to domesticate him. But I thought that that was so interesting that it's kind of ambiguous. Yeah. You don't know what her initial intent was. I mean, yes, she says, now I won't be so lonesome. And you kind of do believe that she wanted a pet the entire time. But I don't know. It's it's kind of open-ended. You don't know what the initial intent really was. Let's talk about this scene. The car ride's terrible. It's just as bad as the train as far as gut punches go incredibly animated it yeah. just it's this is some of the best disney animation that i think you will find hand in hand with the song and the voiceover you know the inner monologue really with the widow it's it's heart-wrenching i actually forgot how late into the movie this happens like because you know that that scene is there, and because it's not a movie you watch all that often. And because it traumatizes you as a kid. I'm thinking it's like 15 minutes into the movie. Same. No, but it's like halfway into the film. Same. And the movie has a running time of an hour and 24 minutes. So it, like, it takes a long time to build up for this. Now, it's, But build up. You just said it. But it's, but it's a good build up. Oh, for sure. It, it makes sense. Um, they're not trying to stuff too much into it. Like, I thought the pace and the buildup was perfect to get to this point. It's still rough. But I don't think it hits as bad as it does when you're a kid. For different reasons. You, as a kid... Now, I'm, I'm speaking for myself, and I want your take. 
as a kid, I feel like you are sad for Todd because you think about, would I take my dog or my cat, take it out to the middle of the woods, take its collar off, and leave it abandoned? You get upset with the widow, and you, you your heart breaks for the animal. As an adult, this is so much worse for her because she is lonely. We know she's lonely. But what alternative does she have? And that's what makes this so much worse for her as an adult. But with all that being said, other than feeling bad for her that she has to make the sacrifice that you know is paining her, she has no alternative. What else is she supposed to do? So it doesn't, so it hits differently, and I don't think it's as severe. And I think that's the difference adolescence through adulthood, what this scene does, and I want your take on that. I agree with you, but I am looking at it a little bit differently. And certainly I'm looking at it different as an adult now than I did when I was a kid. When you're a kid, the widow did the most awful thing imaginable by seemingly abandoning him and he's out in the rain and the cold. But now you realize she did the most natural thing. Honestly, looking at this as as an adult, if she hadn't done this, I would be like, you're just as bad as Amos. Now you're keeping this wild animal cooped up in your house. So it certainly changes my perspective to watch it now because she let the wild animal free. She did what she was supposed to. It would have been more cruel to keep him cooped up like that and that's where maybe a little bit would have gone a long way if we had seen Todd during the winter where he was getting restless but at the same time like I said those other two points wouldn't have landed as hard this moment and the moment with Copper telling him you got to scram or this is going to get bad right so seeing Todd over the winter would have done more for him in this scene, but not for his relationship with anybody else, because you would believe that, okay, maybe he can hack it out here because this is where he's supposed to be. Um, but I definitely never considered it from the widow's perspective. And, you know, this is a perfect example. Like we said, with growing pains, if you love something, let it go. But she's not a teenager. She's not a young person. So this must've been incredibly painful for her, but I think something you also sort of miss as a kid that you realize now is that Amos was crazy enough to show up at her door and he's trying to get in her house. So if he's going to do that and go through those lengths to kill Todd, the second he walks out the front door on her property, anything is fair game to him. So you can't even make the argument that she could have left him cooped up in the house forever for the rest right. of his life or the rest of hers so this is the most natural thing to happen um and then you know it's a rough first night but they soften it immediately with the appearance of Vixie. this is all you know th this is more circle of life than the lion king at this point right because he knows so little he can't hunt he can't seek shelter he can't find his own food um and yes it is softened when she comes in, and this is sort of where the movie takes off for Todd, and it's where it picks up from his story arc in the novel. 
he's never seen another he's never seen a female fox other than his mother he's never been attracted to one this is the whole coming of age thing and i sort of feel like it's vice versa you know like she has seen other foxes but nothing that she's really been interested in and and so you get that uh scene where she's counting the ducklings and there are seven of them and she says i think six would be perfect and he's like six what and she kind of giggles cuz she knows what she's talking about but he's so clueless it is very soft, and I think that that was necessary because other than giving Todd something that would inevitably keep him in the woods and, and have something that he would fight for, you needed to soften it right away. Definitely. This is another Bambi parallel because it totally reminds me of it's the spring and they're both Twitter-pated now. Um, but yes, you also have to give him a reason to man up a bit and right. and protect her because, you know... The piglet porcupine. Yeah, we got Tigger and Piglet <laughs> in this movie. Yeah, uh, he offers him a place to stay for the night when the old badger is turning him away and Todd can't really find a home. Um, so you do wonder how he is going to make it out there, but you have to give him a reason that's bigger than himself. Yes, and... You, your heart breaks for Todd when he wakes up the next morning in the porcupine's den and he's like, where am I? What? It's almost like he believed he dreamt it, even mm-hmm. though he lived it. So that within itself was always very sad. Something that always bothered me as a kid and sort of does now, not because it's not because it's a bad scene, but because it's such a splash of cold water is the Todd and Copper fight. Because the, the the hunter does not care that he's going out on this preserve. And it says hunting's not allowed. He cuts through the fence and he's, in his mind, self-righteous. Uh, we're not hunting. Pure evil. We're not hunting. This fight always bothered me. To see these two f- friends that are now adversaries, um, and especially the way that Todd, when he's kind of vicious, the way that he's animated, it... it it, it was actually quite scary because you've seen a dog snarl and you've seen it in a Disney movie too. But just the look on Todd's face was, as a kid, it would leave me with a pit in my stomach. But that's where Vixie is such an important plot device because I still don't know that Todd would have stood up to Copper unless he had a very, very, very good reason. And that reason is Vixie. Um, because Copper now, he's not just doing what he was supposed to do, but he's also, this gets very personal because he's seeking revenge for Chief. Yeah, right. So that's happening. So like you, you understand, and this is where, this is where you kind of have to start reevaluating your opinion of Amos. He's not evil for evil's sake. And he even at one point sings a song about how I'm a hunting man, I don't have a job, I, you know, I'd rather I do this for a holler and I'd rather have a dog than a dollar. He sings this ridiculous song. But that is his entire life. I mean, think about this. He lives on the bare minimum because he's more passionate about hunting and selling pelts and just having his little cottage with his dogs. That's his whole life. Right. And remember something. He doesn't speak to Todd. He doesn't understand that Todd went into the chicken coop because he was trying to hide from Chief. All he knows is there's a fox in the hen house. Right. So that 
happens, and then Chief gets hit by the train, so it's the Fox's fault. I can't say that if anything... I, I can't say that if anything ever led to the injury of our dog that I wouldn't want to seek out revenge myself. But you have a person that's crazed, but he's crazed because he's trying to seek revenge because his animal was nearly killed, but it's also what he does for a living, so it doesn't give him a pass going on to this preserve. But he's not going on to the preserve to shoot everything. He just, he just wants, wants Todd. Yeah, we just want the rabbit. He just wants Todd. So... Similarly, I look at him differently as an adult than I did as a kid. As a kid, he's the bad guy. Now, no, he's just doing his job. He's crazed. He shouldn't be showing up. He shouldn't be shooting at the widow in her car, and he shouldn't be banging down her door, sticking a, a shotgun through the doorway to shoot up her house. But at the end of the day, he is trying to defend his animal and hunting is what he does for a living. Right, but sometimes I do go back and forth and I need more of a reason that this got so personal other than Chief getting injured because ultimately he sort of put Chief in that situation by being crazed and tracking Todd. Right. The hen house obviously wasn't enough because it could have been any fox and Mm -hmm. of course you're going to want to keep your chickens safe. You need those chickens. But... In this case, he doesn't just go to the preserve with a gun. He goes with these traps. So he could have gotten any animal. I know he's out for Todd's blood, but it, it's like with the car scene. He doesn't care who he hurts in the process. Fair enough. And then he's smoking them out of their den. Like He really is a lunatic. But at the same time, that's where I do tend to agree with you because these are the tricks that he knows. Right. This is how he hunts. Right. So... The one trick that he didn't know was to carry a pistol because (laughs) I know a lot of people because I, you know, a lot of people have questioned why are you able to go to a store? And this is not listen, do not confuse this. This is not a political statement. This isn't a stance. So just put that out of your mind. Why you are able to go to a store and purchase a handgun. That should be something that perhaps only law enforcement has. And I at one point had wondered, yeah, a pistol You're only doing one thing with a pistol, and it was explained to me, no, hunters typically carry a handgun because in the event that the exact thing that happens in this movie were to happen, you could defend yourself. In case of a bear attack, you may not have enough time to To reload reload and get your shells in, and you see here what happens. It's easier to pull a pistol off your hip and just start firing. It makes total sense. And that's the most I will say about anything. Don't misconstrue it and don't send me any nasty emails. There is a reason why these things are accessible for at least a hunter. And that does not seem like something like they figured that out in the last 10 years. It seems like something that was kind of always there. So if you're trying to stick with realism, he's an experienced hunter. He would have at least had a pistol to try and fight the bear off. Now I would understand if perhaps he lost the pistol because he got his foot trap in the bear. He got his foot caught in the bear trap. Right. But for all intents and purposes, he shouldn't have been in this position anyway. But I know it's obviously sets up the climax of the film. Right. Which is that copper tries and fails 
really, to fight off the bear. And Todd comes back, which speaks more about Todd than it does anyone else. Absolutely. And he fights off the bear, and you get the the end scene where Amos is still going to kill. Amos is... Amos has not changed. Amos is what he is. He's still going to kill Todd. And you get that scene that struck me as a kid. And that's why I ranked him on the list of our top five Disney dogs when we did that show with Brennan and Catherine from Detour to Neverland, which I will link in the show notes. That is why Copper was on my list because Copper defies the master, defies his owner, and saves his friend one more time. Because after that, the whole thing's going to be squashed. It's a powerful scene. This, to me, is probably the only scene in the movie that hits as an adult the way it hit you as a kid. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Um, You know, and obviously, Copper and Todd can talk to each other, but I love that there's just no dialogue. And Copper just takes a stand and... Amos has no choice but to back down. Would Copper have done this had Todd not jumped on the bear? No, probably not. He wasn't going to defy his master. But it's just such an incredible buildup and a great end to the roller coaster that is this movie. The only thing that doesn't hit for me at the end, and it didn't as a kid and it doesn't now, is why the Widow Tweed is nursing him back to health. Yeah, because if it were me, I would have broken his other leg. But... I kind of like the idea where it's, you know, they are neighbors. There's nobody else around them. I guess, you know, Amos realized that he can't do this on his own. And I kind of like the end that it's a chosen family, a found family. And I actually really like that Todd and Vixie are watching on. As a child, it's sad that they can't all be together. Uh... But it's not the natural thing. Right. And it would have been too Disney-fied if Amos not only accepted the widow's health help, but was like, okay, well, Todd can live with you again. I won't yeah. go after him. It would have been too perfect. Correct. All right, let's talk about the cast and the characters here. I'm not really going to go into the music because there's only a couple of songs, and they're not even full songs. It's really just Big Mama like narrating, hey, this is what you're looking at right now, which I don't. I mean, it's it's nothing against the film because and it's, the score is so good. But this, I I do I do take issue with songs that are basically just saying, "Hey, you're watching this, and I'm telling you about it." And that's more or less what all of these songs are. But I do love Big Mama's character. Yes, played by uh, Pearl Bailey. She's incredible. She's absolutely amazing. Normally, a character like this, I would have said, "Well, we don't really need this narration. We don't need her to lead." the story in any way, but it's just done so perfectly here where she's always just a subtle nudge. And yes, she does drive the story forward, but it's not a narration that gets leaned on as a crutch. It's just so perfectly done. It's amazing. Yeah. Let's talk about our leads here. Todd. Now there are two voice actors for Todd and two for copper. Mickey Rooney, Mickey Rooney, who, I mean, Disney was was still taking a big chance on him. You know, Mickey Rooney had a, talk about a roller coaster, really had a rough time in his life, especially in Hollywood, and had a reputation. But Disney is not afraid to give people second and third chances. Looking at you, Robert Downey Jr. And I mean, he played a drunk in Pete's Dragon. They just leaned into it. Right. But I thought he was really good as Todd. 
here's the thing. He plays Todd. Kurt Russell plays Copper. They're both really, really good. That kind of blows my mind because Mickey Rooney, you think of because he was in so many Judy Garland movies like you think of him as old Hollywood. I really don't think of Kurt Russell that way. So to have them opposite each other in a film is kind of crazy. But I think that is as good as they were. The child actors are even better. Keith Mitchell plays young Todd. Corey Feldman. (laughs) Yeah. Young Copper. And I would go so far as to say that Corey Feldman, given his age and given how good he was as Todd, might have been the best voice actor in this movie. I would agree with that. And and same thing. It's you throw all these names together, you would never picture these actors working together, but here they are, along with Piglet and Tigger. Yeah. Um Jack Albertson is Amos Slade. Um he it's it's Grandpa Joe. Yeah. It's Grandpa Joe from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And that within itself just blows my mind because they couldn't be any more different. I mean, it just goes to show how talented an actor he is that he can do these two diverse... I mean, Grandpa Joe, how how do you not love Grandpa Joe? He's everybody's favorite movie grandpa. Mm -hmm. And then he goes and plays this horrible person. And this was uh, his last film. He passed away four months after they released it. Uh, Jeanette Nolan as the Widow Tweed. Amazing. Absolutely spectacular. And I mean, oh, and then uh, Sandy Duncan is Mixie, and we know her from uh, The Cat from Outer Space. The Cat from Outer Space. And and, like, so, she was just so good in this. I I actually thought that the life that she gave Vixie was incredible. I love this character, actually. I do too, yeah. They sort of remind me, funnily enough, of uh, Robin Hood and Maid Marian. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously they're both foxes, but they don't look anything the same. Like, for, for a company that had fallen into the trap of uh, reusing animation, they didn't do that here, and I thought that that was sort of interesting. I'm not 100% sure, though, that some of the backgrounds weren't reused from Bambi and uh, from Robin Hood with that waterfall. Mm-hmm. Um, I I tried digging it up. There's no, like, concrete article. Like, there is with, you know how they show the jungle book and the they do a lot of like side by sides. I'm trying to do my own digging to find out if anything was reused. Mm. Um, but with all that, that being said, uh, I think it's time for our final say on the Fox and the Hound. Um, you know, look, I think that it's all around a very good movie. It is. Um, does it have rewatchability? Yeah. Are you going to watch it often? No, I just don't think that it's a movie that it's not an upper. And I think that when you watch Disney films, for the most part, you are looking for an upper, but that's not to be confused with it not being a good movie. I think I think the movie is straightforward. I don't I think I think the depth from the movie comes as you get older and you reflect on everything that you've gone through in your life and some of the things. I think the movie certainly is as relevant now as it was then in, in sort of reevaluating how you look at others and how you treat others. Uh, I think that that, that uh, way of thinking is timeless and, and very much it should be. So I think the movie still hits. Um, it's, it's a forgotten classic, but I, I don't look at this and go, how is this so forgotten about? I kind of understand why. 
It's just the the heaviness of the subject matter. You're not going to see these characters at the Magic Kingdom, right? They're not going to be in the castle projection show. But with all of that being said, it's it's just it's still a very good movie. I actually disagree with a lot of the things you said, starting with not seeing the characters in the parks. I think we should let Amos loose for Villains Nights. I think he should be part of Not-So-Scary Halloween because he's terrifying. I think he should be planted in Frontierland. Um, But I actually really enjoyed this rewatch because this is something that, like I said, I think it traumatizes you as a kid. And I think that that's your only memory of it is it being a very sad movie. But, you know, part of the reason that we launched this podcast is because we still love these Disney films and we wanted to start watching. I I mean, of course we rewatch them all the time, but we wanted to watch them with a more critical eye and, you know, see if they do hold up. And that's something that we ask every single week. And sometimes we get our hearts broken where something that we enjoyed as a kid just doesn't stand the test of time. I think this is the complete opposite. And I actually think that this is probably the best rewatch, at least for me. It's one of the most enjoyable rewatches that we've done for Monorail Radio. And just just in general, because I am seeing this film with completely different eyes. Obviously, you hope you're an adult now. You do view things differently. Right. But I got so much more out of it than I ever did as a kid. And that's, you know, my my plea to our listeners is that if all you remember about this movie is that it's horribly sad, give it a second chance. Because for the animation alone, it's beautiful. And the story has so much more depth than you're ever going to remember. Yeah. And we want to know what you have to say about The Fox and the Hound. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. It would be, you know what's an interesting before and after? If you write us before your rewatch and then write us another one after your rewatch, <laughs> that would be very interesting. Please do. News of the week is coming up, but first a quick break. Hey guys, my name is Mike. I listen to Jackie and Sean's podcast every week on my commute into work. So I reached out to Jackie and she helped me put together the perfect getaway. I did a four night Disney cruise ship and she was able to answer every question that I threw at her. She put together the perfect dates and an insurance plan that made the whole experience stress free. She was able to help me with little tips and tricks like you can get a Mickey Mouse bar delivered to you any time of the day. And I think that was a mistake because now I put about 10, 15 pounds on. I'll definitely be using Jackie again in the future. Thanks for everything. So if you want a Mickey bar or some oversized snacks from Pims at the Avengers Campus or some of the new offerings at Disney's Hollywood Studios, then definitely get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Designs. Whether you are a Disney content creator or perhaps you need some home decor, Kelly has you covered, plus listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. I mean, all of her stuff is just outstanding, and you can see it all online at karmaandkismetdesigns.com. That's karma, the letter N, kismetdesigns.com. So you mentioned before some new offerings at Disney's Hollywood Studios. I think that that is a park that for the longest time needed new offerings, right? Because we used to love going to the Hollywood Brown Derby. I knew that was coming from you. And the last two times that we've been there, 
I mean, the food just for, forget being a it was just not good. So I think that other than a turkey leg and the beer garden, which I love, by the way, they needed something else. Baseline Tap House has always been consistently good. I mean, yeah, the charcuterie oh yeah. board is excellent. To be fair, we haven't been to Brown Derby since 2019. And it's a great place to watch any of the projection shows or the Star Wars stuff. Right. You know, if you can snag a table there at night, the the view is outstanding. But the food has definitely been going downhill. We kind of felt that way when there was a lot of construction going on. So I'm hoping that they picked it up now that that park is like pretty much set. But... This was definitely much needed, particularly at Galaxy's Edge. Ronto Roasters is awesome. It's really cool. Uh, we loved Oga's. We had breakfast there. But after the blue milk, there's just not a lot. Versus when you think of something like Pandora, I where know. they have Satulis, or you know, you get the drinks there, even though it's not in Pandora, you have Tiffin's and the Nomad Lounge right there. So you were kind of starved for for food, no pun intended, on that side of the park. For sure, especially because, I mean, Magic Kingdom, you can name 10 good restaurants at the Magic Kingdom. Epcot, forget it. With all the festivals, the festivals alone, you can feed an army. And I think that Disney's Animal Kingdom has become the most underappreciated park for restaurants. And obviously Disney Springs, I've said it before, it's the fifth gate. You know how good it is. They really needed this. So getting some new options, some new bowls, some new hot dogs, milkshakes, um, you, you, you know, some cast iron skillet looking things. Um, I think that in all, it's good for Disney's Hollywood Studios. I'm excited when we go in November to try some of these things and see if it lives up to what they're doing at Satuli. Because like to me, especially when it comes to Galaxy's Edge, I think Satuli is the thing that is the most fair comparable when you set your expectations for what a meal should be in one of those parks. Right, and I also think it's a little bit of they came out swinging with their theming, but now it's a little bit of like, okay, what else you got? Because right. we've had that for a year or so, to be fair, the parks were closed. But now when you compare it to something like Avengers that's getting all the attention right now, you do sort of need something to balance that out. But I am very much looking forward to that peanut butter shake at the Sunset Market. I'm going to get that while you go on Tower of Terror. Perfect. Save me a sip. Um, no. So... Now we get into a little bit of controversy at the Disney parks. It was confirmed by Stacy herself that Must Do Disney has come to an end, and so has her 15-year role at the Walt Disney World Resort. I mean, when you think about a 15-year role, being the host of Must Do Disney, you're thinking about... At this point, I mean, it's a generation, right, of people that were raised going to the parks on Stacy. And I thought that she always did a really nice job with the video. I would tell you I was lying if I didn't see this coming because when we went in October, they, and even in March, it was basically the same video that we saw seven, well, five, six, 
seven, six years ago, 2015. All they did was just cut out the stuff that they didn't have anymore. So you went from like a 27-minute video to like a 14-minute video. But it doesn't sting any less knowing that she will not be returning. Yeah, she posted about it on Twitter, which was really sad. I really hope that that's not how she found out via Twitter because I had heard this I had seen it circulating a couple of days ago and it was on some clickbaity sites so I yeah. didn't click for that reason and I was hoping it wasn't true uh, but now it's confirmed which is sad but um, yeah I hate to say it this has been a long time coming not to see her go but to your point they cut out the attractions that were no longer there and now it's it's even worse because there's so many new things that have to be incorporated. They would have to reshoot that anyway. And because there's so many new offerings, I have a feeling what we're going to see, if it's not the actual Disney ambassadors themselves, I think we're going to have like multiple hosts across each park. And when you're in Disney, I mean... I hope what I really hope is that it doesn't turn into a commercial for all of the parks because we know the Avengers is eventually going to be they're going to have a campus at each of them. Right. So, of course, they're going to want you to see all of them. But I really hope that you're not at Walt Disney World seeing ad advertisements for, oh, look what you can do in Disneyland, Disney Paris here, there, because the thing about Must Do Disney is that it examines the rides in, in case you're unfamiliar and you don't watch things like Lou Mangiello's right. walkthroughs or Panda's ride-throughs where you can actually see these rides. A lot of people are going in green and they're bringing their kids and they don't exactly know what they're getting into. And if their kid is sensitive to lights or loud noises, that's very important to see exactly what the ride's going to be before you get in there. Especially because they're not doing the vacation planners anymore. I mean, right. up until... A few years ago, you could still put in a request and get a physical DVD sent to your house with a vacation planner. So if you don't have a vacation planner and you don't have Stacy, I feel like you you can't just assume that people are going go, going to go out of their way to like comb through the My Disney Experience app and comb through the website. A lot of people don't have the patience for it. They want to sit there and they want to watch a video and they want to see everything in 45 minutes. So if they're not going to do that, what are they going to do? But I think it sort of lends to what you're saying. I feel like they will have something reshot perhaps, and I'm just speculating. I think that they're going to have something reshot specific for Disney 50 That'll start airing in January. Good point. I think that until they know that they're bringing back all of the fireworks, because we've got Epcot Forever, but we know that's going away in a couple of months. We have Happily Ever After, that's going away, as for how long, we don't know, in a couple of months. They still don't have Fantasmic back. So I feel like until they roll everything out that they know they're going to have for a solid 12 months with increased compa uh, capacity, with increased hotel capacity, I don't know that they're going to put something in as a placeholder other than just little vignettes of attractions that they've already shot probably for commercial purposes. Right, and that is something that they could 
you know, keep reusing because the way that, I mean, the restaurants don't change that often, but when they change their menus, that's something it's not worth to do like big productions on because it's a constant update. But you could have like a large, a longer half hour, something like a must do and then insert little commercials almost for these restaurants to cycle them through. So I can definitely see something like that. It's almost going to be like an HGTV for Disney. It's going to be like a whole lifestyle thing, I feel. I I could see them doing that. But um, to your point, yes, they're not going to spend the time and the money doing this when Disney 50 is going to be a whole thing in and of itself. And then with all of the ever-changing post-pandemic protocols it's just not worth doing something that they're going to have to update in a year anyway correct so let's talk about a post-pandemic world at at a disney park as of right now two things when it comes to annual passes disneyland has discontinued their ap program for how long we don't know and right now walt disney world is allowing current APs to renew, but they are not selling new annual passes. However, Disneyland Paris, as of July the 15th, will begin selling annual passes again. Oh, again, I'm not, this is not coming from a source. This is coming from me speculating. I would find it hard to believe because there's a lot of people who believe that Disney APs are gone forever. I don't see that as a possibility because every amusement park whether it be a Six Flags or a Universal a Hershey Busch Gardens on some level they all offer some sort of AP program but what Six Flags did that I thought was really smart was they repackaged it as a membership and they sold different tiers not unlike what Disney did and Like anything else, the more you paid, the more perks you got. And it was a monthly payment program as as opposed to just an upfront thing. I think because so many people go to Orlando, move to Orlando for Walt Disney World Resort, I just don't see Disney not ever selling annual passes again to new customers because it's guaranteed money in the bank every year. It would be incredibly bad press if they just cut it off. What I think this is, and it goes back to capacity and hotels and all of that, until they're opened up at 100%, I don't think they want to sell new passes because there's a very fine line and a balance that you need to hit because if you sell too many APs, the APs could buy up all the reservations and now resort guests can't get their park reservations and vice versa. I think that's the tug of war that they're fighting with right now. I think you're absolutely right because even looking on the travel concierge end of it, what I'm up against is very, very limited hotel availability. Port Orleans is still closed. I have not seen anything on, and I mean, we, we for the most part, find out when everybody else does, when things are opening. But I, I absolutely have no clue as to when that's going to open again, which stinks because I have a friend that really wants to stay there and I had to move them to Caribbean Beach in 2020 and they want to be able to get back in and I had nothing. So 
that's one thing. The rest of the hotels that are open are still operating at a limited capacity. So until they have an answer that alleviates the limited availability when it comes to hotels, I don't think they can do anything with the APs because how are you going to tell a family of four or five that you can't come for the week because we can't accommodate you, but the person that's driving up from Miami every other month, they can come stay again. I mean, Disney has no right to pick and choose like that, but you don't want to off-put a first-time trip and leave a bad taste in their mouth. Yep. Because you can't accommodate them. It's just, like you said, it's going to be bad press no matter what. They have to figure out the hotels first. Correct. Now, the other thing that was seemed like it was only on clickbait websites but has now been confirmed in Disneyland Paris fast pass is gone premier access is in now i look at this one of two ways when we went to disneyland in california we added on for max pass and we were happy to do it because it was at a nominal fee. I think it was something like 20 or $25 a day. It was day. $15 a day. It was not that much money. However, at Disneyland Paris, it is a la carte per attraction to the tune of $9 per Fast Pass per ride. Now again, Six Flags, Universal, they discontinued fast pass-esque programs, line jump programs, in favor of pay to play. But I, I mean, it, with Six Flags at least, I can't speak to Universal, but for Six Flags, and it was expensive, but you paid once and got the entire day. Disney charging you per attraction this isn't back in the day where you had a ticket book you know what i'm saying when you had the e-ticket attractions and all of that i suspect again with no confirmation that if they're doing it there it means it's probably coming here and as much as i love disney and i do and and i am one of their most vocal cheerleaders i have said a thousand times i'm just happy to be here disney's a business they got to do what they got to do But I think to take something away for free that you always had access to and to start charging people for it, I'll just say, based on the comments that I have read online, and I think these are from the consumers, there's validity here. People are starting to question two things. Number one, how much is too much? And what is the incentive to stay on Disney property because you're discontinuing the Magical Express. You've discontinued extra magic hours. And you're giving that exclusivity to deluxe uh, deluxe hotel guests. So people are starting to say, well, why would I spend five, $600 a night to stay at one of your hotels because your capacity is limited when I can maybe stay at the Hojo 15 minutes away get a room for 186 bucks a night and pay the lousy 25 bucks to park a rental car. That's what a lot of people are starting to question and I got to be honest with you, I get it. I get it. 
So I think... To clarify, you understand why they're questioning it and oh, not yeah. why Disney's doing this. Uh, yes, yes. So, I mean, look, they haven't said anything about it, but... I mean, look, Disney's going to make money, right? They're, they're not going away. But I think this is really going to be ripe for some very harsh criticism. I agree. I think there's going to be outrage if this goes company-wise. And I really think that Chapek specifically needs to re-examine these company values. Because I feel like the mentality is slowly becoming, well, people are going to come anyway and we're going to make money. So it doesn't matter how we hit them over the head. They're going to pay for it. Wrong. That is always what has set Disney apart from everything else. It's that, yes, it is a little bit costly because, you know, we've heard the naysayers. We don't take our kids to Disney because it's too expensive. You have to look at the value of what you were getting. Before the pandemic, your park admission got you so much more than access to all the rides. You get to see a fireworks show every single night, which costs an exorbitant amount of money to put on. Yep. You get free entertainment in the parades, in the shows. You get Broadway quality shows you really do. for free in the park. Festival of the Lion King. Frozen at, at both East and the West Coast yeah. for Frozen, Beauty and the Beast. Um, you know, there there's countless ways to entertain yourselves other than the rides. And those are all at your disposal for free. So that's not to say that in the past Disney was giving away the farm, but there was great value in what you were paying for. Now to compartmentalize everything and make you pay individually. I mean, to pay $9 to get on a ride, that's no different from going to Six Flags or to a carnival and to do, you know, one of those like slingshot rides. Yeah. Some, the upsell rides. Right, right. You shouldn't be upselling. And Fast Pass was always a way to enhance the guest experience by alleviating the lines and making sure that if this is your once in a lifetime trip that you got on everything that you wanted to do and I feel like that's what we're losing here because even though you're not able to buy a new AP pass right now and you can renew them moves like making early entry for deluxe resort guests and now eliminating the fast pass that all gears towards your APs and towards your DVC members. So I feel like we're losing sight of those once in a lifetime trips. And, and that is such a core Disney value is, is for the families to be able to go, not the, and I know we hate the term, the childless millennials who are going to be repeat visitors. We're going to come no matter what. Don't alienate your families. These are perks that you and I, when it comes to people who say, why do you go so often, it's expensive. I have always said, this has always been my defense. For value on the dollar, nobody does it better than Disney. I get transportation to and from the airport, that's going to be gone. I get early or late access to a park, that's gone. You know... We get to jump three lines a day. That's gone. But the prices keep going north. The thing is, 
you've seen Disney, like any other company, they have ebbs and flows. We saw Michael Eisner do a lot of great things. We saw Michael Eisner make a lot of bad decisions. We saw Bob Chapek do basically nothing but good things. Or sorry, uh, uh, Bob Iger. Yeah, I was like, what are we you saw talking Bob about? Iger do basically nothing but good things, and now the man on top, who, if you believe everything you read on the internet, maybe didn't have the warm and fuzzy supporters the way that Bob Iger did. These are the decisions that are getting made now, and these are kind of like your first order of business. I think none of this, in terms of eliminate, 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 I don't think any of that has to do with what we've been through in the last year. If anything, to bump tourism, you would be incentivizing people with all of those things. Taking it away is not incentivizing people. And eventually, people are going to start wondering... It wouldn't surprise me if you start seeing like we did in the 80s. For children of a certain age, you remember the Kissimmee St. Cloud commercials. You don't see them anymore because Disney did such a spectacular job of saying, hey, go do that if you want, but we give you so much value for the amount of money that you do spend. And for a family of five, it is very expensive, but we give you so much, it's worth your while. I think there's a chance we're going to start seeing those timeshare Kissimmee St. Cloud commercials again because people are going to start wondering, what's my incentive to spend twice the money if you're not giving me all of the things that people were accustomed to because it's not like it was just there for a year or two. These are perks that were there for a very, very long time. I understand with the Magical Express at least because you're going to have the railroad running from the airport to Disney Springs, and then from there, you'll disperse on buses. That much I understand. It makes a lot of sense. Everything else, though, that you keep dialing back and dialing back, but look, the price is going up and going up and going up. This is this is just leading to bad press. That I, I don't want to I don't want to spread any rumors or, or say the wrong thing. But it's ripe for the bad press. No, I agree, and. Yeah, Magical Express, I can live without because we already know what's going to replace it. You're canceling a lot of things. You're raising a lot of prices. What are you doing to soften these blows? Nothing yet. Something else has to happen. But, I mean, look, I guess we're going to wait and see because right now everything is speculatory. Well, we did wait and see. Honestly, the reason that we didn't drop this episode this morning, we had it ready to go because we were waiting for news. And we, well, we were I mean, waiting for reputable sources to run these stories. Right. Or, or a big story. I honestly, you know, I've been saying it for a couple of weeks now. We have Boo Bash, but where's the Very Merry? We got the Run Disney announcement. So I kind of thought that coming out of a holiday weekend, we were going to have a big drop, and it never came today. Right. Well, except for Disneyland Paris. I could have done without that one. Well, and we had to wait to see if somebody reputable ran it, and of course they did. Uh, but we're interested in hearing from you, uh, the listener, in regards to how you feel about these ongoing changes at Disney and whether it affects your decision or whether you think that perhaps this is not something that lasts forever and inevitably things 
what what is old is new again and perhaps we do see some of these perks return you can let us know on twitter instagram and facebook at monoreal radio you can also email us monoreal radio at gmail.com thank you guys so much for joining us this and every week on monoreal radio don't forget to like subscribe and rate on your podcast platform of choice uh the social media Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok at Monoreal Radio. We already mentioned the email address. And to link for links to everything, it's online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of. <laughs>